tonight we're continuing to walk through the prophecy of Isaiah. And tonight we move into chapter 41, chapter 41, verses 1 through 29. And you remember last week we moved into chapter 40, which kind of begins a new major section in Isaiah. The first half of Isaiah being more focused on the nation of Assyria and closer to Isaiah's own time. The last part of Isaiah, chapter 40 through 66, more focused on Babylon and looking a little bit farther off in the distance from Isaiah's own time. So Babylon becomes more the focus in in these chapters. And I mentioned also last week that chapters 40 through 66 are, generally speaking, more hopeful, more light uh, shining through these chapters, uh, whereas the first part of Isaiah is a lot more, is a lot heavier, more chapters on judgment, though there are uh, streams of light flowing into that passage as well, but much more positive and encouraging, hopeful words for the future that we find in these chapters. So tonight we're looking at chapter 41, and we're going to see this theme crop up in the in the chapters that are coming up, but it kind of gets its first first presentation here in chapter 41. And that is the idea of God versus the gods. God versus the gods. And this becomes a very important theme, in, especially in the second half of Isaiah, but even especially in Isaiah 40 to 48, this section that we're in right now. Uh, we're going to come across this a lot where, where God is, through, through, through Isaiah, is calling out people for their futile worship of false gods and really just showing how ridiculous it is to worship statues and images made by human hands. And so we see that start to present itself in this chapter. So the first part of chapter 41, verses 1 through 20, is about the true Lord, about his strength and the help that he will give to his people. And then verses 21 through 29 at the end is more about the weakness and the futility of false gods. So God versus the gods. And what we see in the first few verses of this chapter is that the Lord is the Lord of history. He is the sovereign Lord of history. And that's one of the things that separates him from these false gods. Because God can control the world. He causes kings to rise and kings to fall. He predicts what will happen down the road. He can declare the end from the beginning. And that's what makes him God, as opposed to these false idols that that can't do any of that. So he is displayed here as the sovereign Lord of history. And so in verse 1, we see God summoning the nations. It's almost as if God is, is calling the nations uh, to a debate, if you will. He, he's calling them to interact on this question of who is really the Lord? Who is the God? And so God summons the nations to himself. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. And it, it's kind of a setting of, of maybe a, a place of debate, a place of rendering a verdict, a place of rendering a judgment. So God is calling the nations, the Gentile nations, 
the nations that worship these idols, and probably also in view his people as well, who have been tempted throughout their history to worship these false gods. But he's calling them, let's, let's, let's look at this, let's decide this and see what is true as to who is the true Lord of history. So he says, be silent and calm and let's, let's look at this together at the place of judgment. Verse 2, God begins to ask this question that displays his sovereignty. He says, who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. Basically, verse 2, God is asking the question, who has the power, the authority, the sovereignty to cause a ruler to rise up and to, to give, to entrust to that ruler power and might and military dominance to go and to attack and to win and to trample over his enemies? Who, who has the authority and the sovereignty to do that? And most likely, he has someone in mind when he refers to this one from the east. Most commentators agree that he's referring to Cyrus. Who, now just remember the flow of history of the people of Israel and of Judah. So they divided into two separate kingdoms, right? So after the time of Solomon, they divided into two separate kingdoms. We've seen already in Isaiah that during his time, there, was, there were not good relations between Israel and Judah. And at different times in their history, they were, even though they were brothers, they were at odds with each other. And Israel and Syria had formed this coalition to go against Judah. That's one of the primary things that's going on in the first half of Isaiah. Assyria, who was the primary threat in the first half of Isaiah, Assyria has already come and conquered Israel, the northern kingdom. That happened in 722 BC. So Israel, the northern kingdom, has already been defeated. After Assyria, another nation arose that was the dominant power in the world, and that was the nation of Babylon through King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he becomes the next new top dog in the world, if you will. And he basically, Babylon, takes over all the territory that Assyria had amassed. And so these kingdoms kind of grow as history moves forward because Babylon had its own kingdom, Assyria had its kingdom, then Babylon takes over Assyria and becomes bigger. And so Babylon is the new next major power. And Babylon is the one who comes and defeats Judah in beginning in 605 BC and then finally destroying Jerusalem in 586 BC and carries off many of the inhabitants of Jerusalem back to Babylon and they go into captivity. They go into approximately a 70 year time away from their homeland living in Babylon. But through Isaiah now, looking to this future time, looking to the time after the Babylonian captivity, Isaiah is predicting a time of hope, a time of rescue, 
a time of deliverance for God's captive people in Babylon and the instrument that he has chosen to free them and to allow them to go back home is Cyrus of Persia. So the next major dominant power on on the scene after Babylon are the Medes and the Persians. And Cyrus is the king of the Medes and the Persians. And he destroys Babylon and conquers Babylon and has an even bigger territory than Babylon had. But Cyrus had a different plan than than Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon said, let's take these enemies, the people that we've conquered, and let's bring them back to us and enculturate them in Babylonian culture. Cyrus had a different philosophy. He said, I think I can rule better and I can keep these people under control better if I let them stay in their homeland. And so Cyrus, when he conquered Babylon, he let them go back home. So this king of the east that is conquering peoples and moving with with great victory is probably Cyrus. And one of the reasons that we think that it is him is because he becomes uh, someone who is specifically mentioned by name in chapter 43 of Isaiah, chapter 44 of Isaiah. And he and the deliverance that comes through him for the Israelite people to be able to go back home, it comes through him as God's agent. And so that seems to be what Isaiah is referring to here when God says, who is able to do that? Who's able to cause a ruler to rise up and conquer over his foes? Referring to this man, Cyrus. And the answer is going to come in just a moment. Still talking about this ruler, probably Cyrus. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Meaning he just keeps expanding, keeps moving out his borders. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. Who is the Lord of history? Who is the sovereign Lord of history? The God of Israel is, Yahweh is. And his proof is who is able to cause kings to rise up and to fall? Who can, before it ever happens... In predictive prophecy, who can say, I'm going, to rise, I'm going to cause Cyrus to rise up and he will be my instrument in my hand to deliver my people. So God says, I'm the one that can do that. From the beginning, I can declare this. I'm the first and the last. We see that language in Revelation too, don't we? Where of God, he is called the first and the last, but also of Jesus. In the book of Revelation, he is called the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And so God is able to do this because he is the sovereign Lord of history. He's the creator and the one who's providentially over all things. So how do the nations respond to this news that Cyrus is going to be raised up by God and Cyrus is moving out and conquering nations? How do the nations respond? Well, instead of responding positively to the Lord in faith and in hope and in allegiance to him, they run back in in fear to their idols. They run off fleeing to their false gods. The islands have seen it and fear. That is this king who has arisen in conquering. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. So they're, they're trying to encourage one another. They're trying to, to toughen up, man. We can, we can get through this. Yes, this, this army is powerful. We're going to 
There's a possibility we might be defeated, but let's, let's band together. Let's be strong. Let's encourage one another. The metal workers encourage the goldsmith and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. And one says of the welding, it is good. And the other nails down the idol so it will not topple. What are they putting their hope in? They hear this news and the frightening news that there's a new power and Cyrus is coming to defeat Babylon and defeat many of his foes. And in fear, where do they run? They run to their idols. And all these metal workers who work in making idols are encouraging one another, helping one another on to make idols. And then in an incredible irony that shows just the ridiculousness of it all, I love how Isaiah says that one comes along and nails down the idol so it won't fall over. Isn't that great? If this idol was anything, if this idol was really a God, if this idol had any life in it at all, it wouldn't need anything to hold it up, right? It reminds me of the story in 1 Samuel. Remember when the Ark of the Covenant had fallen into the hands of the Philistines? And the Philistines brought it into the temple of their false god, Dagon. And you remember what happened? Their false god, Dagon, fell over in the presence of the, uh, the presence of the Lord, who is there with the Ark of the Covenant. And that's kind of like what's going on here. Isaiah says these people are, are fleeing back to their gods and saying, let's make gods. Let's make sure that we make them secure and nail them down. It just shows the, the ridiculousness of it all. But instead of trusting in the Lord, the one true God of heaven and earth, they run back fleeing to their idols. So the Lord is the sovereign Lord of history. He's also the faithful Lord of salvation. And in verses 8 through 20, Isaiah presents just some incredibly encouraging and hopeful words for the people of Judah who are in captivity or going into captivity, into Babylon. He presents to them some incredibly encouraging words. We see, first of all, that the Lord chooses his people. The Lord chooses his people. And the reason why this is significant is because Israel, the people of Judah, they were tempted to think that God had forgotten them. They were tempted to think that God had abandoned them, that that by them being defeated and going into captivity in Babylon, that they were through. And Isaiah is reminding them, no, God's chosen you. And he doesn't fail on his promises. He doesn't go back. He doesn't renege on his elective choice. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. Just incredibly hopeful words, isn't it? Reminding them, you're beloved of God. God set his love on you. God chose your father, Abraham. He chose your father, Jacob. He has, he has called you my servant, which is a, a term of, of uh, honor in the Old Testament, to be called the servant of God. And he says, you're my friend. So the descendants of Abraham, Israel, Jacob, you're my friend. You're, you are my chosen servant. Incredibly hopeful words. I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. I've not cast you off. 
you are still my people. And so he's the Lord who chooses his people. He's the Lord who encourages his people. He encourages his people. And probably one of the most famous verses in all of Isaiah, verse 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is God saying to the people of Judah, I have not abandoned you because I've chosen you. And so now don't be afraid. Take heart. Be of courage because I am with you. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. God's saying, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I will take care of your enemies. I will take care of those who are opposed to you. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. What a great contrast that is to the recent history of the people of Judah who have been surrounded by the Assyrians. God sent them away in defeat. Now they've been conquered by the Babylonians, taken off into captivity. And so it feels like just defeat after defeat. But God says, I've not abandoned you. And there's going to be coming a time when I rescue you that your enemies will not be seen. They will not even be heard of. There'll be nothing. So God's encouraging his people. He is the Lord who helps his people. He will come to their aid. For I'm the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob, little Israel. Do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Now, we read that in verse 14 and we think, well, that's, that's, a, that's offensive, right, to be called a worm. We use that as an insult, but this is not intended to be an insult as much as it is just a reminder of how small and insignificant that Judah appeared in the face of all these nations around them. From the perspective of Babylon or even Persia, the people of Judah, they're like a little worm. They're just, they're small, they're insignificant. But God is saying, my eye is on you. I am with you. I'm taking you by my right hand. I will help you. I'm your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So don't be afraid. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. So this little small nation, this small group of people, Judah, it's called a worm in verse 14. God says, I'm going to turn you into something mighty, something so mighty that can flatten the mountains. In verse 15, you will winnow them, that is the hills and the mountains. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. So the idea here is that mountains and hills were viewed as symbols of strength and might. And when the Lord says through Isaiah, I'm going to cause you to be able to thresh and mow down the mountains and the hills, he's saying, I'm going to make you strong because I'm going to be with you. And you won't have anybody who's having victory over you. So the Lord will help his people. The Lord provides for his people's needs. Verse 17, the poor and the needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, 
will not forsake them. So he comes to the aid of the thirsty. He comes to the aid of the hungry. He says, I will make rivers flow on barren heights, springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. And certainly God can do that, can't he? When he took the Israelites out of Egypt and they were wandering through the desert and they had no water, God said, here's water, right? Out of a rock, here's water. And he's saying to the people of Israel, I'm going to bring you home and you're going to have no lack for water or for sustenance because I'm going to provide for you. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together. And we've seen these images in Isaiah before where God's displeasure, his chastening results in a wasteland, right? It results in desert. But God's blessing, his care, his provision is the opposite. It it takes a desert or a wilderness and turns it into a fertile land where trees and crops grow, where waters flow. That's the image here is God's going to bless his people and provide for them. And he'll be glorified among his people so that people may see and know. In other words, all of this is going to happen. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm going to help you. I'm encouraging you. I'm going to cause you to have victory over your enemies. I'm going to provide for you. All of that so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. That's about the glory of the Lord, isn't it? And it reminds me of Exodus when God told Moses, I'm going to bring all these signs and wonders on Egypt and I'm going to multiply them so that my people Israel, so that Egypt, so that the nations will know that I am God. And here he's going to do this. He's going to rescue Israel and in rescuing them and bringing them back home and providing for them, it will be seen among the nations that the Lord is God that he is the mighty Lord of history who redeems and cares for his people. So the true and helpful Lord, the one who is strong, the one who is helpful is the true God. But what about the false gods? Well, they're just weak and nothing. And that's where the rest of the passage is. Remember those uh, idols that the people fled to? back earlier in like verse five, six, and seven, they were afraid. And so they fled to the goldsmith and the coppersmith and the metal worker to make idols for them. Well, now God through Isaiah is confronting these false gods and the way it's described, the way it's portrayed is, is God calling on the false gods themselves to appear like in a court of law and defend themselves. So God's calling the gods to himself and saying, okay, present your case. Present your arguments. So the Lord summons the gods to court. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. So if you're really great, if you're the gods who you say you are, then come and present your case. He summons the gods to the courtroom. And the Lord challenges the gods to predict or to act. Predict the future. Act. Do anything to prove that you are something. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen? Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. 
Tell us what the future holds so we may know what you are, that you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. It's God's, he's called them now. And this is literary, right? This is a literary argument. The, the gods haven't actually physically appeared before God, but this is the way that Isaiah is portraying it as like a courtroom scene. And he's saying, okay, gods, make your case. Can you predict the future? Can you even tell us about the past and make sense of it? Can you tell us what's going to happen down the road? Can you do anything at all? Good or bad, just do something so that we can see and be and fear and, and see how great you are. And the response is nothing, right? Because they can't do anything. And so in this challenge, the Lord exposes the nothingness of the gods. They're just nothing, just empty. But you are less than nothing, even more than nothing. You are less than nothing. Your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. Other translations have their an abomination. Whoever chooses you, whoever puts their faith in you is an abomination. And they are surely hopeless without hope. The Lord displays his sovereignty. I have stirred up one from the north. Again, probably referring to Cyrus. Even though in earlier in the passage it says one from the east. Here it says one from the north. It is probably talking about the same person. And the reason for this change is probably because... Cyrus was more from the east and Persia, but, but when he came and conquered territory, he went through Babylon first and then came down. So it's the idea of kind of sweeping through and then coming into the promised land, into the holy land. So he's, he's referred to here as one from the north. Again, referring to Cyrus, I've stirred him up. I've raised him up. One from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar as if he were a potter treading the clay. So I think he's essentially referring to the same person that was referred to back earlier in the passage. And this is God having the ability, having the might to raise up a ruler with this kind of power and to predict it in advance. So the Lord proves his argument. Only he can predict and act. So only he is God. Who told of this from the beginning? That is this one from the north. Who's coming? Who spoke of this from the beginning so we could know? Or beforehand so we could say he was right? No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you talking about the false gods. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. So the the gods... They could have predicted the future. They could have done something. They could have acted to display that they were anything at all, but nothing. God says, I'm the one who told of this long ago. I'm the one who saw that this was coming because I declared the end from the beginning. I am the first and the last. And so the Lord closes his case as like his final concluding argument. I look, but there is no one. No one among the gods to give counsel. No one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. That's the conclusion of his argument. 
and, and really the essence of the whole argument, and, we're, and we'll see this more developed in, in the future chapters here coming up, is what separates the Lord and makes him God is he knows the end from the beginning. He declares all, and he rules over all. He can predict the future because he is Lord of the future. And that's what makes him God. And so he challenges all these false gods to do anything like it, and they can do nothing. So the Lord establishes himself by by controlling history and by predicting the future that he alone is the true God. And in the midst of that is incredible encouragement and hope for the people of God. Here's the great thing about the way that the scripture presents the sovereignty of God. As far as I, there probably are a few here and there that don't present it this way, but by and large, the vast majority of passages in scripture that talk about the sovereignty of God, including the doctrine of election, most of those passages are intended to be words of comfort to God's people. They're reassurances and encouragements to God's people that you belong to God, that you are his, that he is with you, that he will not forsake you, and that in the end, he will deliver you and save you. Those, that's why they're there. They're, most of these passages on the sovereignty of the Lord, his electing purposes, even his predicting of the future, most often they're in the context of giving encouragement to his people to bless them. And that's Isaiah's role here is to remind a small, beaten down, defeated people that God has not forgotten them and that he's the Lord of history. And he has great plans for them, plans of victory and plans of blessing. And there's nobody that can stop him because anyone else who claims to be a God is really just a, a passing wind. It's just nothing. In fact, I'll close with this, but you know the, the key word in Ecclesiastes? The word that pops up over and over again in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word pops up over and over again in Ecclesiastes, and it, and it carries the idea of, of a sense of nothingness, a sense of etherealness. Of it, It's there, but you can't grasp it. It's just... Uh, in fact, Ecclesiastes uses the phrase, it's like a grasping of the wind. It's like you put forth to try to grab something and it just goes through your fingers like wind. That same word, hevel in Hebrew, is often used throughout the Old Testament to describe idols. Vanity of vanities, emptiness of emptiness. It's like a grasping for the wind. You grasp for it and there's nothing there. And that's what this means. Their images are just wind, just empty. They're nothingness. They are non-existent. But the Lord is God, and he is with his people, and he is an encouragement and a hope for them in a time of help, in their time of need. Do you all have any thoughts, um, any, any questions or any comments or anything as we were walking through Isaiah 41? Yeah. 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 Right. 
Yeah. And that's exactly right. You know, we sometimes we think in our modern way of thinking that, well, we don't have a problem with idolatry. You know, we don't have a problem with gods because we don't have little statues. But, yeah, anything can become a god. I mean, Paul in the New Testament calls uh, greed or covetousness idolatry. You're exactly right. And so any anything and everything has the potential to become a false god in our lives. And we have the tendency to want to put our trust and our hope in those things. And interestingly enough, that's where I think maybe the, the idea of, of turning anything into an idol fits in with the idea of vanity in Ecclesiastes. Because you read Ecclesiastes, and, and what was he pursuing? He was pursuing wealth. He was pursuing great projects. He was pursuing love and, and all of these things. He was pursuing wisdom. And in the end, he figured out that they were all just slipping through the fingers, that he couldn't ultimately put his trust or hope in any of those things. And so he comes back to the end. Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and obey his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. And so he, I think the whole point of Ecclesiastes is, is he learned that even these other things can be gods, but they don't provide what we're looking for. They don't give the sense of purpose or meaning or security that we're looking for in those things. So that's a good point that in our day, you know, we don't have to have a statue. We can still have false gods.